morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning we are continuing on in our preaching series of uh, the spiritual disciplines. Um, spiritual disciplines. So Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Um, a couple of quick things. I fixed my mic so it won't be falling off my face this week. So uh, no one's more excited about that than me. Uh, and number two, my, uh, my voice is back, my cough is gone, which means I can go twice as long as last week. So, amen. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, if you're there, say amen. Any more time, say, hold up, pastor. All right, look at uh, verse 1 with me. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had descended into the lower regions, the earth? Who, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up, in love, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your uh, true and unchanging word to us this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we encounter this unchanging word, that we ourselves would be changed uh, from one degree of glory to another, that you would conform us and press us into the image of your Son. Uh, Lord, I pray that, <clears throat> uh, Lord, we would uh, hear the word and that we would understand it, know what it's speaking to us, and then follow obediently in it. Father, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us with all of this and so much more. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Uh, last week we looked at verse 1. I don't think we made it. It was the same passage that we did last week. I'm not sure we made it out of verse 1. Uh, particularly uh, honing on, in on the fact that uh, Paul has spent the first three chapters laying a theological foundation for the church to understand what exactly it is Christ has accomplished in salvation. Then, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul presses that gospel into every single corner of our lives. And the Spirit wants to apply the gospel to all of life so that when we see the world, we see it as Christians. I find myself more and more these days reminding brothers and sisters who follow Christ that this is true of all of us. All of us who claim the name of Christ are indeed Christians. It means we do not see the world the same as non-Christians. It means we cannot be persuaded to get our understanding of the world from the world. We must get it from and through God's word. And this goes for every single aspect of life, not one aspect of how you live your life 
can be detached from an understanding of God's word. But pastor, can you learn mathematics from the Bible? Some will ask. Can you learn all the different constellations of the stars from the Holy Scriptures? They might wonder. Can the Bible heal the real mental crisis of our day? These are the types of questions that come up when you begin to understand uh, God's word speaks to all of life. You get these kind of uh, in-your-face, kind of like, can this really be true questions? And while it is true that the Bible will not teach you calculus or the Pythagorean theorem, which you should know, it does teach you that there is a God who spoke. And this God who spoke, he spoke the cosmos into existence and created it with purpose and intention and design. So if you true, to truly understand mathematics, then you must understand the great mathematician who invented it all. It is also true that the Bible doesn't give us a map of, uh, and name of all the constellations in the night sky. But it does tell us about a man who God called out of his tent one night uh, and told him to look at those very real stars in the night sky. And said that his, offering, his offspring would be as numerous as the stars that he could see and count in the sky. He said, Abraham, number them if you can. So when you look up at the night sky, friends, you should see the artistic wonder that the Lord is putting on display. And you should be reminded that each star is currently shining bright for the glory of the Lord who spoke it into existence. However, it's the last question. Can the Bible heal the real mental crisis of our day? Is a question the scriptures can and do address. Because who knows us best? Who designed us? Who fashioned us after his image? Who knows what ails us and then uh, tangentially what can heal us? The answer to all these questions is God is the one who has formed us. God is the one who, who, who knows what ails us and what we need to be healed, which he has already accomplished through the gospel. So brothers and sisters, we must uh, understand that all of life, all of life must be understood from and through the scriptures. For it is a sure and steadfast word Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. So we must begin with this foundation. If we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines, if we're going to talk about uh, the, the, the good life, if we're going to talk about uh, what, what really is success in life and where are we all going in the end, we must begin with the foundation that every aspect of our lives builds from the Scriptures. I was telling a couple in counseling uh, just a few nights ago, it seems, that uh, we must, in a sense, forget everything we've learned prior to our birth in Christ and new life in him. Nothing can remain in our old hearts. Nothing of our minds or our thoughts and our actions from our old lives can remain. We must put to death the old man, begin to live as the new creatures and the new creation that he has called us up and into. You might be wondering, though, what about how I look? What about the way in which I think? What about uh, the, my certain ways of responding? What about my, uh, the way that I view the world? Does everything become then the same? If we're to forget everything and kill the old man and the walk in the new man, does that mean that we are all going to be the same pastor? And I would submit to you that it's only our current culture with its insistence upon saying that a woman can do everything a man can do or that men, like women, can give birth to children that demands uniformity and flattens all image bearers of God into highly atomized cogs in a machine that demands this kind of thinking. In other words, it is a world which demands everything must be the same, not the scriptures. On the other hand, the scriptures are abundantly clear 
that there are not only differences within the body of Christ, but that these differences are intentional and purposeful. They're intentional based upon the fact that God knew what he was doing, both at the creation of the world and at the creation of the church. Notice how God creates distinctions and differences in the creation account. He distinguishes light from dark. He distinguishes day from night, land from sea, flying animals from swimming animals, men from beast, and man from woman. In the created order lies distinction and fundamental differences. But even in the church, this is true as well. God has intentionally created diversity and differences. This is abundantly clear where the scriptures describe the church as a body consisting of many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that was read this morning. Where we're told that some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are ears, and others of us are eyes. You see, God has called some from every tribe, every nation, every language, every ethnicity into being one body. His body. This means that there will be those who like country music, God help us, in the church. And there will also be those who like uh, my daughter this week, um, who asked me to put on her little music player. Dad, can you put the cool music on there? Referring to rap music. God's called us both into the church. All of us from all sides of the spectrum into the church. And he's done all of this intentionally. God does not make mistakes and everything he does is right so God has intentionally created the world. He's intentionally created the church with distinguishes, uh, distinctions and differences. And he's also created it this way with a purpose. In other words, he created the world and the church intentionally this way. So it would bring about something to happen. So friends, what is that purpose? Why did God create the world and the church with all these differences and distinctions? And why is the world so hell-bent on pushing the agenda of sameness? In other words, the question we're asking this morning is, what's the goal of all of this? What is the goal? You see, without a goal, without a destination, you are left merely wandering around aimless and oftentimes depressed. And the reason for this is because there's an objective fundamental difference between going east versus going west. From going north versus going south. You cannot walk into an airport, get on a flight that's headed for New York City, and hope to end up in the sandy beaches of Maui. And yet, this is what so many of us have done with spiritual disciplines, isn't it? We've jumped into the moving train called spiritual disciplines without understanding and without knowing where in the world it's headed or how it applies to us or how, how our uh, distinctions and differences should be considered when understanding spiritual differences or spiritual disciplines. Put differently, many of us end up trying to implement new techniques, new patterns of life, New ways of doing life without understanding what the goal in all of it is. Have you ever wondered and started a scripture reading at the beginning of the year, only to fail miserably once you hit Leviticus? You pass the interesting stuff of the creation account and Joseph going into prison. You see God move the children of Israel out of the Exodus, and then you get to about the middle of the book of Exodus. You know what happens there? The Lord goes on for like five chapters just describing like what the, the tabernacle and the tent uh, in the wilderness should actually look like. And your eyes glaze over, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to keep committed to this because this is supposed to be a spiritual discipline, so let me just muscle up and do it. And then you hit Leviticus. And you know what Leviticus is? Have you ever read Charles Dickens' um, A Tale of Two City? It's pretty famous, uh, the best of times, worst of times. Uh, that's about all we know about that book. But if you keep reading, uh, if you keep reading, you know, uh, Dickens has a way of describing his book uh, that's really awful. 
Um, because if you keep reading, he, he starts to describe the blood, right? Anybody familiar with this book? He says, there's blood in the streets, and there was blood everywhere, and there was blood. And he's just over, overly repetitive. Like, that's what, like, the book of Leviticus is like if you read it closely. Sacrifice for this, blood offering for that. And so in your spiritual discipline, you hit that about maybe February, March, and you say, well, this doesn't work for me. So many of us jump into the train of spiritual disciplines, unsure where it's heading and why we should be upon it, without understanding the goal of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So friends, where are we heading? How do we know if we're going in the right direction? How do we know if we aren't paddling backwards when we should be paddling forwards? In our time this morning, what I want to do is put before you the goal. I want to put before you the shores and the distance and say that that is the direction we need to head, to hit dry land. Last week was about pointing out the fact that to begin this journey means that you first must be a Christian, you must be born again, uh, and that like all new babies, you come pre-programmed to actually want to breathe, knowing how to turn oxygen into carbon dioxide. I've had four children. I've never once sat down and given them a lecture on here's how to do this. They just know. Similarly, in the Christian life, there are certain things that we come pre-programmed with wanting to do and knowing how to do it. You also come pre-programmed to want to eat, knowing how to digest your food. You don't need uh, someone to tell you and instruct you on the chemistry of the gut. Your body just knows how to do it. And similarly, there's spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, which we just know how to do. This week, though, however, is not about pointing out what those are. It's about pointing out that babies do not stay babies, at least not healthy ones, but grow up into grown men and grown women. So look back with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 11. Uh, Because in verse 11, Paul begins to kick off this chain reaction of events. He lists them very quickly. As a matter of fact, all the way from verse 7 to the uh, end of verse, uh, where was it? Um, No, not 7. Yeah, verse 11 down to like verse 16 is like one sentence in the the original Greek. Um, But we're going to jump in here at verse 11 uh, because he, he kicks off his chain reaction chain of events that leads to a final destination. Look at verse 11. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. You see, Paul here is referring to the ascended Christ, right? The one that he just described, right? The one who uh, ascended in verse 8. He describes in verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, he says, Yeah, that ascended Christ, he's now given something. This Christ who sits at the right hand of God and fills all things, He's the one who gives these different kinds of people, these different roles and responsibilities within the church. But notice first that verse 11 is connected to everything which came before it. Go back to verse 4. In verse 4, Paul says this, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You should, we, be, we should be grounded then in our understanding of what exactly Paul is speaking of here when he says that, that Christ gives these things. He's speaking within the context of the church within the one body, the one spirit, the church. I need to constantly say this on repeat in our day because we have been trained and raised up in a culture which continually tries to take these verses and make it about you. Listen, I love this. These verses are not about you, but they are for you. These verses are not about you, but they are for you. We'll dive into more of this next week, but let me uh, say this here now. When when you think uh, of uh, even the term of our sermon series, Spiritual Disciplines, what comes to mind? 
what kind of things come to mind? What kind of practices, what kind of disciplines come to your mind? Do you think of them primarily in terms of fellowship or individualism? You see, if we're honest, you most likely think of spiritual disciplines as what you do by yourself. Personal Bible reading, personal prayer time, personal devotions, maybe a spiritual discipline of going to church. But overwhelmingly, you might be thinking of it in only terms of how does this affect me? What do I need to do? How do I grow? What is the benefit for me? And I want to continually put before you that that is not how the Bible operates. Now, should you do all those things? Should you read the scriptures? Of course. Should you spend time in prayer? Of course. Should you spend time in devotions and meditations and thinking about the Lord? Absolutely, 100%. But why? Why should you? And this is often where our reasoning kind of stops. We say, well, so I could be more like Christ, perhaps, if we're trying to be particularly holy. Um, So it can go well with me, perhaps. But these are the wrong answers. You should because of your role within the greater community of which God's called you to be a part of. You see, you should grow in your knowledge of God so that you might love him more deeply, yes. But then share that love of him with those who you love around you within the church. You see, when we try uh, growing in these personal areas without connecting to the larger body of Christ, uh, that's when we begin to see deformities and cancerous spots develop on the body of Christ. So Christ has given apostles, he's given these prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to the body of Christ for a particular reason. Again, he has given distinction and differences for a reason. And, and what is that reason? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That word to there at the beginning of verse 12 means in order that, or to bring about, or to cause to happen. It speaks of purpose. God has given the differences, he's given these distinctions, he's given these roles and responsibilities within the church so that the saints might be equipped. In, in other words, that if, if God hadn't given, if Christ hadn't given these roles, these things would have not have come about. You see, what Paul is doing is building this logical waterfall of things that happen. You see, Christ gave to the church. That's the first step. He gave certain people certain roles to the church that they might equip or perfect the saints, as one of the old translations say. So within the list of gifts that Christ has given to the church is the shepherd or pastor. I don't say this boastfully, but just as a matter of fact. If Calvary Baptist Church is your church, if you are a member here, that's me. I don't know if you knew that. This is what Paul means when he says that, that Christ has given shepherds and teachers. He's given pastors. You see, Christ has put me in this church for a certain reason. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, like, who, in the, who does he think he is? Here's who I know I am to be. I'm the best you have this morning. For better or for ill, this is who the Lord has given you. Uh, and I apologize for it. At the time, I'm thankful for it. And that's the reason, right? Notice the reason why. Why has God put all pastors everywhere he's put them? So that, he may, that they may equip the saints. That's you. That's you. Understand that this highlights the importance of our gathering time week in and week out, doesn't it? It highlights the importance of our commitment to, to one another week in and week out. You see, Christ is, what, what Paul is saying here, what the Spirit is telling us is that Christ has put uh, uh, the apostles, right? That's Jesus' 12 plus Paul. He's put those people first, and then he's given the evangelists, the, the shepherds, the teachers, right? He's put those to continue on. 
to build and to equip, to perfect the saints. In other words, if, if you're not a part of a local church, you are not being equipped. You're not being perfected. You're not growing in the way the Lord would have you to grow. But let's keep going. Christ gave to the church. He gave certain people certain roles to the church so that they may equip or perfect the saints. And he did this so that these saints might then do the work of ministry. You might be thinking, Pastor, I thought that was your job. And I'm here to tell you the scriptures say it's yours. This work of ministry is going to look different, though, because we've, uh, we've merely reduced ministry to what I'm doing up here right now. But that's not the way Paul thinks about it, and that's not the way the Lord thinks about it. You see, we've all been given different parts of the body. I've merely been given this part. You have yours. Some of you are hands. Some of you are feet. Some of you are ears. Some of you are eyes. And the reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 12, and the reason why we read it this morning, is that, is, that, is that we're not all the same. Distinctions and differences, and that's on purpose. We do not all have the same work. So imagine you came in here this morning, and let's imagine like you're an eyeball. Just picture yourself as an eyeball sitting in your chair. But next to you is a foot. And you look at the foot, and you can see because you're an eyeball, and you say, thank God I'm not a foot. And what Paul is saying is, is like, that's a ridiculous thing to think. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Because we're all part of what? One body. We're all one body. We're not all the same. We all have different work to do. The Lord has put before each of us certain tasks, certain vocations. He's given us certain necessary components uh, to be able to do the work he has assigned to us. The problem comes in life when we decide we no longer want to play the part. We no longer want to play the role. We no longer want to be the character and the story that God is writing for us. We would rather decide to take our cues from society and allow them to redefine for us what is the purpose of life and vocation and everything. This is ultimately why family life is dying, because we think our family only exists to serve us and our wants. This is why church community life is dying, because we think we have to go to a church uh, that uh, has our consumer preferences, right style of music, the right length of preaching. This is why civic community life is dying, because we no longer care about the true welfare of those who live in close proximity to us but only care about local politics if it in some way affects me. But God has placed you here now at this point in the story for a reason. He's called you here today. He's given you a mission to do. Brothers, sisters, do it. But let's keep going. Christ gave to the church. He gave certain people certain roles to the church so that they might equip the saints. Uh, and he did this so that these saints might do the work of ministry. For what? For building up the body of Christ. So all of your work, all of your ministry, all of your vocation, all of your life in Christ is not meant for you alone. Who does the text say it's for? It's for the whole body. It's for the building up of the church. You see, you being here actually builds me up. Did you know that? That's what, that's what he's saying. Like you have gifts, you have certain wiring, certain capacities, certain, uh, certain uh, ways about feeling about the world that uh, comport with God's word, yes, but are different than mine. And because of that, it actually grows me up in the body of Christ. You see, we are all members of the same body. So the, 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 the purpose for all of this, then, is for building up the church. 
Let's look at the final destination, though. In verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us where all of this is heading. All this equipping, all this perfecting, all this work of ministry, all this building up. To, to what end, Paul? Where are we heading? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, the point in verse 13 is that the last stop in the chain of events produces a certain kind of Christian. And by producing a certain kind of Christian, it is not producing a different kind of Christian. Growth in Christ looks like moving from newborn to boyhood and from boyhood to manhood. All of this happens within the context of the church. This is where we are heading, in other sense. So if you think about spiritual disciplines, you must think about it in these terms. And what is, the, what is this mature manhood, this mature womanhood that he's calling us up and into? What is this stature of the fullness of Christ? You see, Paul first describes it by saying what it isn't like. He says it's, we are no longer like children. You see, Paul at one point in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, he, he wishes to feed the Corinthians solid food, he says. But he rebukes them and says, you are still children and you must eat the milk before you can eat the solid food, right? In other words, that they should have been farther along than what they were. Thinking of children, then I'm reminded of how children act when they don't get their way. There can be a number of different reactions, right? You have some kids who will grow angry and fly off the handle into a rage. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have kids who just become pouty and mope about. Um, and that is their own form of tantrum. Both are tantrums. Both need to be disciplined. Time and time again, my wife and I must remind ourselves that our children are actually growing. They are progressing. Because if not, we would get hung up on every single minor offense and every argument and every disagreement, which there are, Lord help us, many. And that would cause us to be heavy-handed in our discipline to them, but they are growing, naturally so. But think of Christians you know. Perhaps you are one of them who are still like children after many years of walking with the Lord, still complaining, still grumbling, still walking in the same sins that you've been struggling with, always contentious. Is this not like little children? He also says that they're tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know these types of people. It's these types of people who are afraid or hesitate to say, this is what the scriptures actually say. You see this more and more clearly in our day than with, uh, with, with whole denominations, whole sections of churches changing their issues, uh, changing their stance on issues such as same-sex marriage and women pastors, on which the church has agreed for more than 2,000 years that Scripture condemns both. This is where you have Christian men and Christian women within their workplaces stating what their pronouns are. I thought we figured that out a long time ago. He, him, his, she, her, hers, and a whole host of others. It's entering into this kind of lunacy and madness of our day and trying to play the game under the banner of niceness, which has led many Christians afoul. And listen, I speak not as one who is above the fray. I work in places like this where all around me the temptation to just put, the, put my pronouns at the beginning of a PowerPoint slide is real, to forego the argument or the discussion where people have wanted me to call them a girl and I refuse when I know they're a man. 
So I say this as one who is in the muck and in the mire with you, brothers and sisters. And yet, we must stand firm on the word. You see, it's when the church, in the name of trying to be relevant, loses its prophetic voice to the culture and instead goes the way of culture that the church becomes irrelevant. Paul says that the growth in Christ looks like a deeper and deeper dependency on Christ and on his word. Look at verse 15. He said, rather speaking the truth in love, we to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, instead of being tossed to and fro, instead of being children, growing in mature manhood, mature growth uh, in Christ looks like speaking the truth and love and growing up in Christ. And I love that phrase he says in there. He says, we are to grow up in every way. You see, there isn't a spot in your life where you don't get to grow up in Christ. You don't get to cling to your anger. You don't get to cling to your selfishness. You don't get to cling to your gossip. Everything comes under the authority of Christ. But notice finally with me in verse 16. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, Christ is the one who builds his church. And Christ is the one who holds every joint together. As Christians, we realize this reality. But notice the last part. It is when each part is working properly that the growth comes. Have you thought about your own growth in Christ in the last year? The last six months? The last week? Remember, as Christians, we instinctively want to grow in Christ. This is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. When he's given us a new heart, we instinctively want to grow what it means to be a new creature. So where is the growth? Where is the growth here in our local church? What ministry has God given you? How are you impacting those around you? How are you loving one another in this building? How have you moved from consumer mentality to a builder mentality? How are you trusting in Christ more now than you used to? What sins have you finally put to death? All of these questions which should be, constant, should be constantly and continuously addressed in the life of our church. The journey of spiritual discipline must have a goal. It must have a destination. It's based upon this chapter, that goal and that destination is the building up of the church, which has a deeper love of God and a deeper love of his word. So in closing, let me give four quick points of application and then we'll get out of here. Number one, since the goal of all spiritual disciplines is the building up of the church, then it is imperative that we are actually a part of a church. We must once and for all be done with the American individualistic thinking that thinks we can do this Christian life on our own. You can't. If we read the entire Bible every week, it takes about 70 hours. If you were to sit down and read the Bible from start to end without taking a break, it'll take you about 70 hours to read it out loud. If you were to do that every week this year, 52 times, and yet not be connected not be serving, not be loving, not be bearing the burdens of one another, of a local church context, then you, as Paul says, have gained nothing. This would be a prime example, an extremely sad case of missing the entire point. Number two, if the church and each member have a way in which they can work properly together, then it necessitates that there are ways in which it can become dysfunctional. Think about a human body. A human body can grow a cancer. And so too can the church. And the thing about cancer cells is that they are just simply normal cells 
but which divide in an uncontrolled way. Cancer is not a virus that comes from the outside, but is always a problem which originates from within. Though cancer can be spurred upon by outside forces, cancer itself is always an internal cell mechanism problem. It's a problem of the heart. Therefore, in the context of a church, it's the problem of the heart. Therefore, we must use the sword of God's word to make sure that we are growing in a certain kind of way. A way that leads to properly working parts. To put it more plainly, the scriptures get to define what properly working means. Scriptures get to define what a healthy body is. It is scripture which tells us how God is to be worshipped. How we think about shared life together. It's not us, not our feelings, not our preferences, not the current cultural moment we live in, not the government. Anything. Scripture alone tells us what a functional body is. Number three. We must always remember that the work of the church and therefore the work of spiritual disciplines is love. It's love. The work of the church, therefore the work of spiritual disciplines is always love. Again, here we must let the scriptures define what love is, what love looks like, what it is, sounds like, how it talks, how it acts. I was in conversation with some men this week on Friday morning, and I, I, they, they were talking and you know they kind of... Um, went to this idea of love, and I just said, you know what, I hate that word love. I said, aren't you a pastor? I said, I am. Uh, and so they asked me to elaborate on it, and, I, and what I hate about it is the way it's been defined today, which is this, that, that love means that there's simply no hate. Love today means you must love me on my terms, what I feel to be loving behavior. So if you disagree with me on something, we've called it unloving. To try to persuade me out of something to which I hold to is an expression of hatred. But this is not how we are to understand love. We are to understand love as it properly comports with God and his reality and his world that he's created. How did God love us? Was it by accepting us just the way we are? Never demanding us to change? Giving us everything we wanted? Of course not. God did love us, truly. He was the only one to ever truly love us, which means he could not actually accept us the way we are. In fact, it was so bad that he had to become one of us and pay for our transgressions. God loved us by knowing we could not change, no matter how much the law declared we needed to change. And so he loved us by changing us from the inside out by changing and replacing our old stony hearts of flesh, which are able to pump blood and life into our veins. God has loved us, not by giving us everything which we sinfully wanted, but by giving us everything we desperately needed, and then giving us new wants. The work of the church and the work of spiritual disciplines is love. We must love what we want to build. We must love each other enough to encourage growth and holiness and discipleship. We must love our children enough to shepherd them into the presence of Christ. But this love does not mean that there is never a place for disagreement or violence or even war. Instead, if we truly love, then it, is nece- it necessarily follows that we will have to fight. We will have to fight. And, and this is, this is, let me just speak pastorally for a moment to you. Uh, because everything in society, to stand up right now and to say, this is what God says, and this is the most loving thing that I can tell you, everything in society says, that doesn't seem very Christian. That doesn't seem very loving. I want to tell you, like, don't let the enemy take the dictionary. Don't let the enemy take the dictionary. 
G.K. Chesterton once put it, a true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. You see, your love for people, your love for each other, your love for lost people will cause you to have to rise up and fight. Take, for example, a husband and wife. If a husband says that he, he loves his wife so much, and let's, let's say they went out on a date together and, uh, and they went to a, a dinner uh, and they're walking home, and let's say five or six uh, uh, thugs and fools come up on them, they roll up on them, they take the wife's purse, uh, they're poking at them, they're calling their names. And imagine if the husband's response was sitting in the corner and says, hey, honey, I just want you to know, like, I disapprove of all of this. I don't agree with anything that they're doing. Honey, I love you. Um, I, I really do love you. And I disagree with what they're doing. As a matter of fact, I am so angry right now and so feverishly uh, angry that I'm going to keep saying that I disagree with them. And that's all they did. Is that husband truly, does he truly love his wife? Does he truly care for her? The answer is, of course not. You see, our, our love is only proven in the midst of war. Our love is only proven when we actually have to stand up and to defend that which we love. So friends, what do you love? Do you love the church? Do you love to see people come to Christ? Do you see people grow, love to see people grow in holiness? Do you love to see the body working properly together? Then fight for it. Defend it. Finally, there are certain things, number four, we must do, certain disciplines, characteristics, which we all must have in order to bring about this type of growth in Christ. And for those spiritual disciplines, come back next week. Father God, we thank you for today. Um, Lord, as we just consider for a few moments here this morning uh, uh, where we should be aimed to, what should we be thinking of, what should we be praying for, where, where should we be uh, uh, focusing, where should we be paddling in the waters? Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, anchor us in the fact that all spiritual disciplines are meant to serve the church. And by serving the church, we all individually then will be served because of them. Father, I pray you would knit us together, as the text says this morning, that you would equip us, perfect us, and grow us all up in love towards one another. Love as you've defined it, Father, a love of, of, of righteousness, a love of uh, everything good and holy, and a hatred of sin, a hatred of evil, and those who would do evil. Father, I pray that you would continue to uh, form us into the kind of people who are known by love, even if that love sometimes looks like war. Father, give us strength in our day because everything in our day is trying to tell us to be quiet, is trying to tell us to drink the Kool-Aid. But Father, Lord, you, you have called us to this, to these scriptures, to these truths. Lord, we are simply people who haven't moved off the scriptures and while the rest of the world ha has shifted. So I pray for strength, I pray for courage in the days and weeks, months, and years ahead, Father. Lord, that, we are, that Calvary Baptist Church would be a church where there is joy, there's love, there's happiness, there's growth, vitality, there's life because we serve one another. Father, I pray you help us with all these things in Christ's beautiful name.
Amen. Brother Philip.